Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello to all my witches out there and wizards too. Welcome back to Books and Nachos, reviews of the Harry Potter books. And today we are joining the Order of the Phoenix. And just a note, this will be spoiler filled. So if you're afraid of spoiling this book, I guess you have to go read it and then come back. With me tonight, as always, Stuart. And I must not tell lies. This is Brock. You may not have lied. I think you did tell me it was a big book. But Brock, you did not prepare me for the gigantic Webster's Dictionary that I had to go get from the library. Like, no wonder the Kindle was invented shortly after this. Like, just physically, who could read this book? My daughter couldn't lift the book up. Like, she couldn't hold it in her hands when she was reading it. She had to keep it on her lap or in front of her on a bed because the book is that dense. Yeah, I'm reading all of these on an iPad, so I only felt the length in hours, not in pounds. My book is actually falling apart. Most of the books at this point are actually the binding is breaking because of age, because of how many times we've all read them here in the house. But this one especially because it's 900 pages, 870 pages. Of course, when you open the book, it's it's going to break. Yeah, I think that was the punchline then. I seem to even remember stand-up comedians, like someone made the joke, the next book is going to be called Harry Potter and the End of Trees. Like you're just <laughs> killing forests by giving kids, like every kid in the world wants a copy of this. It's 870 pages long. Total deforestation. It wasn't just kids who wanted a copy of this. Arnie was hyped at this point. He'd read book four, loved book four, and was anxiously awaiting book five. And while I didn't pre-order it, because I remember seeing Amazon sold out and they'd actually have camera crews following Amazon deliveries that day of Order of the Phoenix books to shrieking children... I just went into Walmart one day, like, after it had been out a couple of days, picked up a copy. It was not really any fanfare, but I was excited. I don't know if you remember this, Brock, but J.K. Rowling, the week before the book was released, she went out. You might have been mad about this. She gave a spoiler for this book or a tease. Someone big is going to die. And so... I'm like, oh my god, are they killing Hermione? Are they killing Ron? What's the deal here? I devoured this book in one weekend because I needed to know who was going to die. Oh, I very much remember that. I was a pre-order person at this point. Worldwide release on the same day. Big deal. And I have a story that relates directly to what you're talking about. So I bought the book. I was reading it nicely. And then I had a weekend coming up with my father. We're going to our family reunion. And I wasn't quite finished with the book yet. So I stayed up late on the Thursday night into Friday morning to read this book because I had to finish it before we'd left. It was a four-hour drive. So after the four-hour drive is up, I'm exhausted. And I get to the house. We say hi to people. And I go to the, the, the lanai, the fenced-in porch. I sit at the table with a drink. And I put my head down on the table. My cousin Megan's right there in front of me. She's like, what's the matter? I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I stayed up late last night to finish Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And as I'm saying that sentence, my eight-year-old nephew Patrick is walking through the door of the lanai to go into the house. 
She says, why would you stay up late reading Order of the Phoenix? And as Patrick walks by, he says, Order of the Phoenix, serious black dies! And walks right out the door. And I lift my head up calmly, point backwards towards Patrick where he was, and said, that's why I stayed up late to read the book. <laughs> mm. Yeah, spoiler, I guess. Yeah, it was a huge spoiler, but I have to say, someone big dies, and it's Sirius Black. We had known him for a couple of books, but he's not a Dumbledore, he's not a Hermione. We can discuss if that's big enough death for her to announce that. However, who he is in this book, I would argue, yes, I think it's a big death, especially for the character of Harry Potter. Does it warrant her saying ahead of time? I don't think so. Did she say anything about why this book is so long? None of the next ones will approach this by hundreds of pages. Like, you'd think the climax, the last book, you got to get it all in. But book five out of seven? Well, I don't know an exact answer for you, but I can certainly hypothesize. The next book, as I mentioned already, when we talked about book two, some of the material was already prepared. She knew what that book had to be to set up for the ending. And she knew what the ending book was going to be and what that story was going to be. So anything else she wanted to cram in here, she had to do here. Plus, as we're going to discuss in a few minutes, there's quite a lot of thematic elements here that I think at the time she really wanted to get out. So she had to progress Harry's character, plus the political and, and thematic elements. I think that's why the book is that long. Yeah, I didn't see anything specifically addressing the length, but this did take three years to release. So there'd been a long gap as she wrote all these pages. And I was looking up a couple of things, and I found a Harry Potter wiki. Of course I did. But what really hit me is this book takes place in 1996. Yeah. So... That really put things in perspective for me. Rowling is very vague with time, I started noticing. She doesn't mention years. She mentions time periods. But yeah, this is uh, taking place right around the time I was logging on to AOL regularly before it offered internet and it had an hourly fee. <laughs> But she didn't write it around then. Like, this book particularly felt very political. It felt like, I know it comes out summer 2003, the world is enmeshed in the discussion about propaganda and going to war. Like, this is in no way a commentary on Bush? 9-11? I think the politics can certainly apply to then. It can certainly talk about what happened in the past in Britain, in Europe, for decades previous. And remarkably, it can certainly talk about what's going on today in, in different parts of our world. So I think what she's talking about in this sort of political issues with the politics and where politicians decide to, how they handle things, how they handle adversity and, and their involvement in schools is certainly very prescient no matter what decade or time period it takes place. Sure. Arnie, what you said a minute ago really surprised me that, first of all, you've just discovered a Harry Potter wiki. I mean, come on now. And secondly... Why would I ever look for one? It's amazing. That means Harry Potter was born in what year? If this place takes place in 1996, did you look that up? Well, I'm guessing he's 15 here, so that would be 1981. 1981. July 31, 1981. And it's a big deal, considering that if this book was written even 10 years later, the proliferation of... I mean, cell phones were already common, right? But... I mean, how would Wizards even deal with cell phones? It's kind of a fun idea to think about if this book, if he was born in 1991, how much different these stories could be. Um, but I love the fact that it was in the 90s that these books took place. It is still a very secular world in which we're taking place. I still feel that Rowling is creating a fantasy world 
that only tangentially takes place in the real world. You know, there's still no electricity at Hogwarts. There's still no real references to things going on. They're not listening to modern music, which I find hard to believe. I mean, unless there's big wizard bands that are taking up the charts like college radio, they would be in some ways impacted, even if they're pretty isolated. I mean, I keep thinking about how East Germans loved American music and loved American blue jeans and things. There would be outside influences that don't exist in Rowling's world, and I've just come to give her that conceit. Wisely. The Weird Sisters was a band that played at last year's dance. If you remember in the Goblet of Fire, that's the name of the band, that the Wizarding Band. It was also featured in the movie that this rock band exists in the Wizarding World. And we talked about, I think last time or the time before, that electricity doesn't exist, but plumbing does. Because um, electricity gets wonky with the spells. That's how they explain it away. But to keep the old-timey feeling of it. But again, as I think is hysterical, they do have indoor plumbing that the muggles gave them that. But Mr. Weasley is really into all sorts of muggle stuff, and it's it's a source of quote-unquote humor in the books when he asks Harry about muggle items and mispronounces them as well. It's a constant running gag, and she uses it here in this book as well for a little bit of light humor as much as she can. But to Arnie's point, I think this book is better by the fact that it didn't try to tap into pop culture of the early 90s. Yes, Agreed. that might have made children feel like uh, maybe it would make us as people that grew up around that time feel more tied to this. But now the books are timeless. Now they can be read by any generation and you won't feel that it's dated. And you don't need to know he's born in 1981. She started throwing out these dates, which gave us all this information around this time. But honestly, he could have been born, as I said, 1991-2001, if you're reading the books for the first time now, because of all the stuff we're talking about. So, yes. Finally, finally, I'm going to give this book a huge compliment right off the top. We have a Harry I can relate to. The angry teenager. The 15-year-old that defies authority, calls out injustice, gets a lot of detention, this was my high school experience. I totally get where he's at with that. And I thought in previous books, Harry was a magical character who just sort of was the reason why we would find out the story we were. And now I see him actually butting heads with and stepping into adult conflicts. You know, I'll agree with you, except he's that same note for like 650 pages of 766 pages. And to me, it gets a little tiresome. I mean, I really had to think about it and be like, I remember being a teenager. I remember those hormones that would make me fly off the handle unreasonably and things. I understand maybe she's really trying to tap into the anger of puberty, but... I do feel at times his petulance is a little overwrought. I mean, this book is long. I'm not going to say this book is too long, but certain things in this book are drawn out too long. I agree at certain scenes with uh, with Ron and Hermione when Harry is, is that way do get a little tiresome. But what I love about his anger here is I can understand exactly where he's coming from because as a teenager, one of the things that I had a conflict with was nobody was listening to me or paying attention to me or willing to listen to what I have to say that people who I care about and want to talk to things about with, I can't because they're in Dumbledore's situation, ignoring him for Dumbledore's reasons, or Ron and Hermione not understanding exactly what it meant to see Voldemort back and Cedric being killed, or Cho Chang really just 
basically using him. There's a whole bunch of things that are feeding into his anger. It's not the same thing over and over again that's feeding that anger. It's that he can't talk to Sirius when he wants to. It's a, it's a long list of things that Harry has conflict with here. He feels he's being treated unfairly for a great portion of the book. And and rightfully so. I mean, the, the major complaint is the whole world is campaigning against the murder that I claim happened. They're calling me a liar that Cedric died at Voldemort's hands. And now I have to, in order for a weak leader to retain calm, he has to say that me and Dumbledore are full of it. That would make anyone fuming. I read many of these pages fuming mad at the injustice, which I just think is a great place to put the character. We don't like Harry when everyone likes him and he can do everything. We like Harry when he remains put upon and has to dig into his grit and determination to keep going. I'll agree. I think one of the things this book did very well is create a situation where even though I'd read this book before, I didn't see a way out of things for Harry. Everybody did seem against him, and I don't just mean that in the teenage everybody's out for me way. I mean, the (laughs) Minister of Magic is trying to get him expelled, and they're installing the Inquisitor Dolores Umbridge to keep an eye on him, and things do get so constricted around him that it does start to bleed over into my reading this sense of hopelessness. I mean, I know that Harry is going to be triumphant at the end of the book, but there are times where I feel like that isn't a possible outcome. So I think that's really a testament to Rowling's writing here. And Dolores Ubridge is the best, like she outsnapes Snape. They've tried many times to create someone you just hate, and I hated this bitch. Yeah, she was really well written here, and what's fun about Dolores Umbridge is she kind of, quote-unquote, kills you with kindness until she doesn't. And she has that mean streak in her, but she has a smile on her face. And I remember the first time reading that scene when she has detention with Harry and on the back of his hand, and they have like three or four chapters in the book where he has detention and it keeps going in the back of his hand. And after a while, you could feel that pain, and it's a wonderful metaphor for what Harry's going through. And I love her line is, um, until it sinks in. And gosh, I mean, how many punishments have you had when you were a kid and either at school or at home from your parents or your teachers or whatever, and they really want you to get that lesson and make it sink in, but she's in Rowling literally had it going there. And I just, the thought of that torture at the hand of a teacher just makes me cringe. You know, you can't do it now, but we all, I think, grew up at a time where the principal had a paddle above his desk, and, like, corporal punishment was a real deal. Like, teachers could hurt you. The Catholic school notoriously had nuns with rulers. The people I knew that went to the Catholic school nearby talked all the time about physical abuse they, you know, sustained from these authority figures. So, again, this old-school ministry wonk is going to come in here and change all of these policies and try to remove anyone that speaks out. I saw a lot of Bush in that, but you're right. Fascism is an outfit you can wear every 20 years. I feel like it happens all the time. But, yeah, this is really adult, potent stuff. It's a great conflict for Harry to be facing now that he's 15 years old. It really shows wizarding life outside of school, too. Harry's getting older, the readers supposedly are getting older, and it's opening up a worldview that not everything wizarding is Hogwarts. And I think that helps to show, it's said in this book, 
the world isn't divided into just Death Eaters and the Order of the Phoenix, you know? There's a lot of people in between who do good or do ill for their own reasons. That doesn't mean that they're all going to end up a follower of Voldemort as much as we might think that's where Umbridge is heading. Although, yeah, there are some people that are, like, supportive. I do love how Voldemort is, like, today's culture wars. And it's, like, splitting up households. You Like, Sirius mentions, oh, yeah, I had a brother. He joined the Death Eaters, and he's dead. And my parents, they weren't Death Eaters, but they kind of were like, well, as long as it's just attacking, like, half-breeds, we don't mind. Percy character I never cared about. Look at the way the Weasley household is split in this one. Painful stuff. I love that they did that with Percy and how they exemplify exactly what you're saying about how regular wizarding families, a regular normal person could, I don't want to say brainwash, but can certainly see a different point of view than what you were brought up on. He's sort of rebelling against his parents in a sense as well, but he's really drunk with power. Don't forget he was a a head boy and prefect at Hogwarts. This is an extension. It makes a lot of sense for this particular character to do that. But absolutely with the Weasley family being such a tightly knit unit to throw that monkey wrench in there is wonderful. And Sirius Black himself has a storied family with Death Eaters and uh, his mother and Creature, a whole bunch of evil all around him. He is the black sheep of that family (laughs) of not being evil. Yeah, that is what's kind of funny there. When when he gets a tour of the house and they've scratched his name out of the family tree, but I'm like, but they're connected to the Malfoys. Like, (laughs) you realize that to be pure blood is essentially to be incestuous and, like, it actually... relates a lot to the conflicts we feel like we're having now with race and class. This book feels incredibly relevant uh, in ways that are just very satisfying to read in 2022. Agreed. To go from the macro to the micro, you talk about Sirius Black and his family there. Might I say how much I love Creature? You know, we kind of complained about Dobby, but Creature is absolutely wonderfully malevolent in every single scene, and it has payoff. Later on, it's actually going to be more than a running gag that he is constantly saying these nasty things about Sirius because his master was Sirius's mother, and he prefers pure bloods and would rather work for the Malfoys and everything. I've mentioned earlier that I have the audiobooks as well as the hard copies. And for these reviews, I typically stay with the hard copies as much as possible. However, I purposefully read the beginning of this book with the audiobook because Jim Dale's creature is hysterical. It is absolutely hysterical. I highly advise you go to those chapters and listen to him muttering. (laughs) It's a joy. Jim Dale is a joy on those books. Some people like the Stephen Fry versions. That's great. I don't know those ones, but the Jim Dale creature is totally worth listening to, Arnie. It's just so funny. Yeah, everyone seems to have a harder edge. You're right. The house elf has got, like, this streak in him. Even Dudley. Like, at the beginning, the Dursleys, I always wonder how much we're going to get and how much harm they can cause Harry. And Dudley's gone bad, too. He's, like, running a gang and beating up 10-year-olds. <laughs> and, like, fun- like of course this kid, pampered little brat that he was, was going to go bad. It's just kind of satisfying to see him be a bully and then get bullied by the Dementors at the beginning. I really felt like this was a high moment for him. Him in the saga as well. I love also how the book opens up with a Dementor attack, much like a movie sometimes opens up with a giant big action scene or a big surprise, like, in, for example, Iron Man, right? And then it goes back to all this information that gives you all the information you need. Here it gives you the big Dementor attack, and then we don't have a lot of action at all. 
or a lot of magical stuff at all for the next, what, 200 pages as uh, he has to go through all of that stuff with the Ministry of Magic. Very smart way. And help me out with this. I mean, I've read mm-hmm. all the books, but Dementors, they are the jailers at Azkaban. They answer to Fudge and the Ministry. So if they're going out and trying to kill Harry, maybe not Fudge. Again, he could just be Neville Chamberlain trying to, you know, show deference to Hitler. But it means someone in the Ministry is trying to kill Harry, right? That's what this means. Dolores Umbridge sicked the Dementors on Harry. No, I no, I got that. I'm just saying that you would know from this beginning, the Ministry not only is denying Harry's story, they're literally trying to kill Harry. Well, actually, the Dementor attack is blamed on Voldemort because a lot of the Dementors have abandoned Azkaban mm. to join okay. Voldemort. So it is plausible that they were sent by Voldemort, and it's kind of a surprise, shocking surprise that Umbridge herself did it behind Fudge's back, because obviously Fudge would have to authorize that. Yeah, we knew once she was pulling out spells you no one's supposed to use, this woman, for all her rule adhering, she's off the range. How about the relationship between Dumbledore and Harry? We've talked a lot about, especially you, Stuart, about how you don't see the big deal about this uh, Harry and Dumbledore relationship, and what's the big deal, why do people like him so much? I think in this book, you really understand Dumbledore in a whole new light. I know he's ignoring Harry and frustrating Harry, and at the end he has this <laughs> murder-she-wrote explanation of everything and why he did things, but he admits to making a mistake. He is no longer the all-powerful, all-knowing wizard. He actually admits that some of his actions, what he thought were correct, were incorrect, and it very much humanizes this man and takes Harry's and Dumbledore's relationship to a more understandable and, I think, mentor level. I think here, more than any other book so far... I really understood the relationship between Harry and Dumbledore, and when Harry really needed was Dumbledore to be that wise sage, and what turned out that Dumbledore, he messed up. I loved that. Walk me through that. What mistake did he make? As Dumbledore explains it, he separated himself, ignored Harry as much as possible, because he had figured out before anybody else did that Harry seeing all the visions in his head it's basically a two-way street. It's not just one way. So had Harry been showing Voldemort what Dumbledore was doing or a lot of what Dumbledore was doing, Dumbledore could not properly prepare, investigate, fight the evil that's going on. And so that is what Dumbledore, that's the very basic gist of it. Yeah. So what mistake did he make? He correctly distanced himself from someone who was unintentionally spying for Voldemort. He neglected Harry and Harry's needs and Harry was left to his own devices to figure things out, which basically drove Harry crazy. And to the point, it didn't work anyway, because there was a big fight at the end of the movie, because basically Voldemort manipulated Harry to get what he needed. Okay. Plus, he says, clearly, he made a mistake in thinking Snape and Harry could put old grudges behind them, and that Snape could teach him the occlumency needed to close his mind. I mean, that was clearly not going to work out very well for either one of them. And yeah, Snape, despite being in in the Order of the Phoenix, you know, he's on the good team, but he's still like, screw you, Harry, let Voldemort read your mind, I don't care. Well, there's a big reason for that because of that big scene in the Penisive when Harry sees the memory that Snape did not want him to see. I love that Harry saw Snape take out those memories before each lesson and put them away so Harry could not see them. And Harry could not help himself, looked at it anyway, and we saw a snippet of why Snape has been 
so angry towards Sirius Lupin and does not like Harry Potter because of the memories he has. And this one especially was very big memory of how Harry's father bullied him and how Harry's mother tried to help him and then Snape was rude to her. It's remarkable how this scene says so much in such a short amount of time about why Snape dislikes Harry. I think it comes through clearer than what you guys were saying in book three. You guys were all like, isn't it amazing we have that flashback? And you can see that Harry's learning that his parents are fallible and his dad did that. I'm like, eh, that was a badly written chapter and I could barely get through it. Here, I do think you are allowed to more clearly see it and more importantly, clearly feel how complicated that is. How when you look at your parents at your own age, what they're doing. I guess that's the point of the fact that this book is called The Order of the Phoenix, that the Order of the Phoenix was something that Harry's dad helped create back in the day to fight Voldemort, and now his son is picking up the mantle again and forming some new club as Umbridge is leaning down on them and saying, no one will learn defensive magic. The kids are fighting back and saying, we'll learn it ourselves. That feels like Harry living up to his dad's image. But also, does that mean that Harry is a bully? Does that mean that Harry is a potential threat to certain individuals? Should we feel sorry for Draco? I don't know (laughs) if Draco is the new Snape or not. Yeah, you don't feel sorry for Draco. And Harry brings trouble upon himself. We have seen Harry do this in the books, and and we've seen it in the movies where, you know, if Harry leaves well enough alone... He wouldn't have so much trouble come his way. He seems to have a penchant. His curiosity gets the best of him in this situation here. And and this with Snape and his relationship with Harry's parents is only going to get more complicated as we go. And I love that they put it here to show this. Also, show how much Harry is much like his father, James, and that he decided that he knew better and decided to go in that Penisive instead. Yeah, I get the feeling that at this point, Rowling really has her end game in mind. Mm-hmm. She's going to dribble and grab some information like about the parents, but she knows where she's going with it this time. I clearly feel, especially those first two books, she didn't have an overarching vision of where she was going. But here, she knows she's got seven books. She denounced that. Whether that was actually the right number or whether she painted herself into a corner with that number. (laughs) Or maybe she was going off of British schools because those OWLs these kids are taking mirror real British exams. So maybe she's going off that, but I think she knows where she's taking these characters and why, and that's adding some weight to these teases. I'm starting to try and guess those things too. And I, that this one was the one that made me think that Snape's going to end up being some kind of father figure to Harry. And the reason why is because, yeah, as you pointed out, Arnie, he's in this order of Phoenix. It's like the club for all of Harry's fake dads. You know, like it's got <laughs> Mad-Eye, it's got Sirius, it's got, is Hagrid part of it? I'm not sure about that one, but it feels like he could. Ron's dad is obviously acting like a surrogate many times. And of course, Dumbledore, it just feels like this is, we know that we should trust these people because every single one of them in the previous books has been a father figure to Harry. Another haunting scene in this book that I return to often when I think about this series is St. Mungo's, and I want to mention that for briefly because Neville's parents are there. Although Harry knew a little bit about it before, they all three of the trio see Neville's parents, see Neville, see Neville's grandmother, and see the pain that Neville had to go through. And this goes again with a thematic 
elements of these kids are getting older and dealing with real life, real world problems. Wizard or not, you still have family issues and you have who are your parents, who were they, what did they do? And now that you're getting older, they're no longer on a pedestal. They're actual people and human beings. And Neville's had to live with that for quite some time. And because Neville is tied to the prophecy that is such a big deal, especially at the end of the book, but that's what Voldemort wants throughout the whole time, to have this scene in there is quite haunting to me because this is what could have been to Harry's parents instead of Neville's. I really thought that was going to be book seven is, whoops, it's been about Neville all along. We kind of hinted (laughs) that it could be in five. It's all Neville. Mm. The why Voldemort picked the Potters instead of the Longbottoms as who the prophecy would be about is been questioned nonstop because it's not 100% clear. I always took it to be Bellatrix and the other Death Eaters tortured these folks, and so therefore, it couldn't be them. So they took care of the Longbottoms, and Voldemort went to take care of Harry. You know what I'm saying? So that's how I always took it. It's not entirely clear here, but of course, Voldemort did not expect the magic to defeat him, the magic of love. So it's remarkable. Can you imagine Neville Longbottom and the Order of the Phoenix? doesn't have the same (laughs) ring to it, so... You know what? There is fan fiction out there somewhere, I'm sure. I'm sure someone has explored that extensively. Not interested. Just going to put it out there. Not what I want to (laughs) read. But since we're talking about his friends, Harry does get a new friend in this one. We finally meet a Ravenclaw that matters. Last time, Cedric represented Hufflepuff, and now we get one of the smart kids. Or I guess she's a smart kid. She's a weird kid. Luna Lovegood, the goth girl that uh, reads tabloid journalism that's true well her dad is the is the head of it um what i love about luna and i think a lot of people love about luna is she's the oddball she's the weirdo she's the one that is different and does not care what you think about her obviously she cares at some level but she her outwardly appearance her she doesn't let it get to her she just let it roll off her back she knows more or she knows what she knows and you want to know it too fine and harry and Ron and Hermione come to respect that of her because they think she's odd too, but throughout the book. And at this age in your life, we're all Luna Lovegood at some point in our life. We're all Harry at some point in our life. What a great idea to introduce a character like this so late in Harry's school days. She's, she's actually your younger, thank goodness, instead of being the same year. It would make more sense why they don't know her. And it also gives Harry someone to talk to about those Thestrals and have something to talk to Harry about that other people can't. Unfortunately, it's the weird girl who's doing it with him, but I love the fact that they have this aspect of teenage life and this aspect of how one deals with your problems. I wish all of us could be a little more Luna Lovegood now and then. Well, here's the thing that's weird. Like, she's supposedly believing things that are untrue. Like, obviously, it'd be like someone that thinks everything published in the National Enquirer is fact. But when you go to a wizarding school and there's magic, it doesn't sound crazy. Like, why can't there be the thing she's talking about. I guess the point is only in a rational world does conspiracy look insane. In a wizarding world, I think that she looks just like every other student. But I take the point that basically what it does is it allows her to have a separate news outlet that she can pipe Harry into and they can fight back against the ministry propaganda. Because her dad runs a paper called The Quibbler, they can actually turn Rita Skeeter into an ally. And like she ends up writing... A defense for Harry. (laughs) Being blackmailed into writing a defense. (laughs) Yeah. Don't forget also that the ministry is publishing lies and talking about mistruths and everyone's denying or trying to deny that Voldemort is back, much to the detriment of our heroes. Whereas Luna Lovegood's lies or mistruths are harmless. 
They're about these creatures that don't exist that are invisible. So there are, quote-unquote, good lies, bad lies, harmful lies, benevolent lies, or just mistruths or fibs or whatever you want to call them. I think it's very much in this book on purpose to show you that making things up for the benefit of yourself can be good, but making things up and how they affect other people can be bad. So it's definitely there on purpose as a dichotomy. Okay. I imagine this is a character that will return and have some relevance even in the climax. So I look to see how she develops. But here, yeah, she's just sort of an oddball comic relief. And yeah, someone to sort of shake up the gloom of Harry's angry existence. And what I like is that they are expanding Harry's circle of friends. I always felt like it was a really small group. It was Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And again, children's literature, so I was just kind of going with it. But, you know, we'd have a few other recurring characters that would show up, but never matter. Here, they've introduced some new characters and made characters matter. One of whom maybe shouldn't matter. How did you guys feel about Cho Chang? I just, that whole date with her in Hogsmeade, I'm like, dude, Harry, you got no game, man. What are you doing? <laughs> like, it was so much fun to read that chapter. Girl is hurting. She's going through a lot of problems. She's attracted to Harry, but maybe not always for the right reasons. And Harry is just not in the right place to date this particular girl. And it was just wonderful slice of... Look, guys, I'm going to be saying something to you guys right now. You may not might find hard to believe, but I wasn't always the ladies' man that you guys know me to be. Mm. Uh, I have, I may have made some of these mistakes myself. Maybe not exactly the same mistakes, but certainly can understand how Harry is feeling and Cho is is reacting and all that stuff. But to be quite honest with you, I never really believed Cho likes Harry. I always took it to be that because Harry was with Cedric that it's kind of like a rebound off of Cedric because of how it ended and all that kind of stuff. That's that's the only reason I always don't really care much about Cho. But Harry is always like Cho. I remember from the third book, he made a big deal about playing against the Hufflepuffs and being like, oh, they got a cool seeker. And like I was like, that stood out to me. I'm like, okay, when the hormones hit, sure enough, they're starting here. I guess I would just say that the love story is not the focal point. At least for me, I was much more drawn into the the wider political ramifications. I wish it did feel more like a high school story. The book's big. Maybe if I went back and read it again with that lens, I would see more of it. But I probably skipped over the Cho stuff, trying to find out more stuff about, like... Well, I know, we're just getting information. Like, Hagrid comes back and is like, giants are siding with Voldemort. Like, you know, like, you get the sense that the world is all polarized rising in one of two directions. If it's not about that, I'm probably not paying attention to it first read. Yeah, and I felt like this book was far more about the high school stuff on both of my readings. I remember the first time I read it, I said I read it in a weekend, but I also remember some disappointment because at the end of book four, Voldemort was back and in a form. He wasn't just back on the back of somebody's head. And now <laughs> stuff was going to go down. Only doesn't you know it's like mm -hmm. it takes a long time an entire year here where Voldemort is just gonna kind of sit back and I guess in the background yes approach giants and see if the giants want to come over to his side and that sort of thing but I expected more direct antagonism going through here instead of the book that Rowling wrote and so it just took me aback as 
how can Voldemort just be sitting around and Harry is so worried about who he's dating? It felt like she was still writing that high school book that she'd always written and following the beats she's always had from Quidditch and all of it. And yet I felt things should be much, much bigger. I hear what you're saying, but she blurred the lines is what it is. Because we have a minister figure who comes in and becomes the new headmaster. Because we have Umbridge, because Umbridge is so, I mean, I have Umbridge against Umbridge. Like, she will make you (laughs) mad. She works perfectly well as a villain, and it doesn't feel like an ordinary high school year. It definitely feels like this school has been corrupted, and we can't trust our own government. And that, to me, made everything political. I agree on everything you just said, Stuart. Also beyond that, having a character like Umbridge being the bad of the book instead of Voldemort who comes at the end, you have Harry be able to get on his own two feet, train and start the DA, deal with his own stuff he has going on. It allows for the character of Harry to develop and progress where he needs to be to go forward and finish this series off and be available mentally and with the power of magic behind him to face Voldemort in the eventual showdown that will be coming. We do get a big wizard fight at the end with Dumbledore and Voldemort in the Ministry, which, depending on which day I read it, I find incredibly thrilling or that's it. So I really wanted more. And this particular reading, I found the the two masters against each other thrilling, but I do think it's over too quickly. I would kind of wish Voldemort kind of retreated because Harry jumped in the fight with Dumbledore and pushed him back versus just Voldemort realizing he needs to escape before the gig is up and everyone sees him. I think Rowling intentionally teased that there would be a death in this book, though, to try to keep you on the hook because I knew that when I'm reading... And so I'm reading through this, and every time a character gets in the slightest bit of danger, I'm like, oh, is this the character? And I became convinced on my first reading, oh, it's Ron's dad. Ron's dad was attacked by a snake in the Ministry of Magic, and I think she draws that out a little bit. Like, we don't know how he's going to be, and really is teasing you because she knows she gave the meta-knowledge somebody's going to die. And then... You think it's serious in the vision, and then you think, oh, it wasn't serious, and then it is serious. I think she just kind of played with her audience in that regard. If this book had been sold to me as you're not going to believe who dies in this climax, wow, I'd be pretty pissed. Because, yeah, serious Black, I didn't even really like that third book, so, like, he's not my guy. I, it does not make me sad to see him gone. Harry has a lot of father figures. I hate to be that callous, but, like, he barely spent time with this guy. It was mostly, like, an owl correspondence. Every now and then he'd look in the fireplace, you know what I mean? Like, that's an absentee dad. But he was best friends with his dad. He knows his dad better than anyone else. Harry wants that experience so he can get to know his dad a little bit. Unfortunately, although it does play more in the movie than here, they kind of play it up there, is that a Sirius may think that James is back, even though it's Harry. But it's kind of nice that Harry has this kind of person in his life for the first time. I just don't like how he died. That veil thing is so confusing on Mm. exactly what it is. Thank you. Thank you. I had this problem both times is that Bellatrix didn't cast a killing spell. I got this from the wiki too. The reason I went to the wiki is to look up this veil because this veil annoys me. Yes. But she sent a stunning spell and because Black fell through the veil, that veil is between the living and the dead. And so once he fell through, he was in the land of the dead and could not return and all of that. And I find that to be 
really a weird way to make Harry deal with death is that this person just fell and disappeared into this veil area instead of just having him die. Like, in the movie, she's going to send a killing curse. He's still going to fall through the veil because they're being true to the book in some ways, but I don't get what she was going for with this metaphor beyond, I guess, in English slang, having a near-death experience is sometimes called going beyond the veil. But I don't know why she had to do that. (laughs) Well, here's the problem that's introduced. If you're at a school where there's ghosts flying around, then what's the concept of death? Here they actually have to have Harry go talk to, like, the Gryffindor house ghost. What's it, Nearly Head head Ned or what? I never knew. Nearly Headless Nick. Okay, there we go. I knew you guys would know. That's why I don't have to go back to my notes. Thank you. (laughs) But, you know, they have to make the point that sometimes dead is dead. You know, they're trying to get to some idea about loss and grief and, and all of that. But... Just didn't land with me. I will say this. I thought the book overall, solid entry, a little bit long, a little bit anticlimactic, as Arnie has indicated. Mm -hmm. Maybe not exactly the follow-up we wanted, but mostly a good effort. But if I was supposed to be crying here at the end, uh, that didn't work for me. Oh, this hit me so hard this time. I remember the first time I read it that I just washed over me. I was more distracted by the way he died. Now, I have to say... I'm being separated here. When I'm reading these passages about Harry dealing with death, when I read this the first time, I hadn't dealt with death. Nobody I knew had died. Nobody I knew well. And now I've known a lot of people who are dead, and I'm reading this, and a friend of mine just passed away two weeks ago, and I'm feeling that sense of loss, and I'm reading this, and I'm understanding what Harry is going through. What I don't think she did very well is translate that. Like, I understand him lashing around. I understand him going through the five stages of grief. I very much understand the bargaining stage with nearly headless Nick and the hope of pulling out that mirror because I've had somebody die in my life and it's irrational thought, but I had thoughts of like, oh, I'll call him up or, oh, I'll Maybe if I do this and, you know, dead is dead. And so I got what she was doing, but yet I feel if you're a child or an adolescent reading this, she didn't do a great job of portraying that. I'm projecting and her words are better because of the situation and what I've experienced versus her writing actually being great in that way. So I agree with you partially. The Mungos has always been haunting me because I have seen relatives of mine just not be who they are anymore because they've aged out or had some sort of disease or something that happened to them that they're not themselves or the person they used to be. So that scene has always done that to me. But I, too, Arnie, uh, have I've lost people since the first time I've read this book. But what I liked about this scene this time with Harry's dealing with the grief is because, as you said, I am familiar with the five stages of grief now that I was not familiar with it back then. But what I really liked about it this time was if kids themselves, like Luna in the book, experienced death. Harry has always known his parents are dead. This is the second time he's experienced death in two years right in front of him. And he's already dealing with Cedric, even though Cedric wasn't close to him. He just saw someone die in front of him who was his age. Now he's seeing somebody that, for the first time, symbolized parenting to him, symbolized someone that he can go to as a parental figure die. So he's actually watching 
a parental figure die instead of knowing his parents are dead. And so all of that hit me this time stronger than ever before. And I have to think that kids who have witnessed their parents dying or have unfortunately had to go through that themselves at a younger age or even as a teenager, perhaps these scenes hit them as they're hitting us now, Arnie, earlier in their lives. I think she did a great job of reaching out to those kinds of folks who will live those kinds of lives and experiences earlier than we had to. I just don't think she did a great job of translating for those who haven't had a death. This wouldn't help them empathize with their friend who has had a death. You know, and I'm not damning Rowling for this. I'm just saying when I'm looking at the pain that I know Harry is suffering, Mm -hmm. the pros don't always make it through. And it's partially because Harry's been so damn mad this whole book anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But that's good. Again, I like angry Harry. Keep him angry. I think it makes... Again, finally, he's relatable as a teenager. He never felt like a real child to me until this book. I just know this time, though, despite my complaints, I was engaged in this book. I was addicted to reading this book. And it's not just because I had one week in which to consume 800 pages. I was brought back to when I read it all in one weekend. I I do think the political aspects of the book, the almost political thriller that's going on, the suspense of it kept me coming back to this book. I think that's why I may be a little hard on Cho Chan, is because I just felt like there was a lot of teenage angst there when I wanted the other parts of the book, and I just kept coming back. Now, I feel this book may suffer a little bit, because so much is set up. The centaurs that come in at the very end. The fact that there's grop in the forest, you know. Mm-hmm. These things sort of pay off in this in a way that nothing's brought up that doesn't solve some kind of problem for Harry. But I gotta feel, and I don't remember, that there's going to be more of this coming up in the next two books and they're setting up the dominoes. Yeah, I think there's a lot of setting up going on here. I mean, I know there is, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. But I do think that shoehorning Grop in here, maybe not have been the best choice, but that's okay. I mean, if if, if that's one thing that I can complain about the book is I don't really get the Grop stuff as much as I would like to in the perspective of this book. So there you go. What I would say is my final thought was if you were just looking at it in terms of plot, this book is too long. It's filled with details. And Mm -hmm. as you're saying, some of these details really do need to be here for later. I don't think anything here is wrong. I just feel like you feel the length of this book. And it sounds like we had different reading experiences in part because you guys know how this story ends. I have no idea how this story ends. You've read all of them before, both of you. But I remember nothing. All I know is Harry is going to win. Maybe intuitively. <laughs> like, I, again, I feel like you you must know something about how Harry turned. You know whether he's dead or not. You know how certain people are going to wind up or not. I think that that will color your perspective. I think this is probably one that you could read many times and see different stories in it. It begs an interesting question about adaptation into a movie. Is So many different movies could be made from this book. What movie did they make? I guess you'll have to join us on the other show to find out. And I just want to say, as my final thought is, I love this book in this series. It's one of my favorite books in this series because of everything we're talking about. It has kind of a thinner plot with this whole prophecy thing in that aspect, but with all the character development and all the progression of all of our main characters, plus some of the supporting characters who've been around for so long, we get 
so much good stuff for so many characters that have been around for so long, and we get it for Harry Potter, and this Dolores Umbridge character is such a great allegory or a great metaphor or just a, <laughs> a thinly veiled, no pun intended for the end of the book, commentary on political happenings in the past of the day when this was written and remarkably of our times today. So it's just one of these books that when you return to it and read again, you get so much of and really helps flesh out this world of Harry Potter even more than the last book did. And I, for one, I'm happy that it's almost 900 pages long because this really gives us so much more meat for the payoffs that are coming off and the ending that's coming up in the next two books. So I'm a big fan of this book. And my memory is this is my favorite book too. I definitely say as of this reading, it's slightly above four for me and they've pretty much been getting better and better each time with the exception of two being a slight step down but my memory is that when i read this the first time i told marjorie this is like the empire strikes back because at the end we finally got you know luke and vader together again and we had harry cocky and he walks away humble you know he sort of loses that fight he loses black as a result of his own hubris and so i was so excited for book six and i had to wait years for it and i'm curious if reading book six in short secession is going to improve my experience versus reading book six years after reading book five and not revisiting the first five books at all but like Stuart said, there's a lot here that we will be talking about as it's adapted into the film. You can hear that show at nowplayingpodcast.com by becoming a gold-level donor, $25 or more. We are only about a third of the way through the series, because when you take the Fantastic Beasts trilogy into account, but our review of Order of the Phoenix is coming out tomorrow, and you can support Books and Nachos and support Now Playing, both ad-free shows. You can find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So thank you for joining us at Books and Nachos. We will be back next week, whether you donate or not, to discuss Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And until then, remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. He doesn't die because Beatrix casts a killing spell. <laughs> Beatrix Potter kills him. It's Bellatrix. <laughs> Bellatrix. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Rabbit comes out and starts killing him. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you know what? It could happen. I'm this just school, kidding, Artie. I just I thought it was funny. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Reading and not listening. I like Beatrix. It's in my head as Beatrix. <laughs> you know. Sorry. Go on, please.